can feel the step off. Like this might be the first spinal step off I've ever, ever felt. So this guy clearly had a spinal fracture that's probably going to paralyze him. And all I could do was write on a note card, uh, go to the main city to get go, go see a neurosurgeon. And then you hand him the card and you hope he manages to pull it off. Urban disaster management planning is a massive undertaking and nowhere is that more true than in LA County, population 9.8 million. And with me today to talk about that, I have Dr. Puneet Gupta, Assistant Medical Director for the Los Angeles County Fire Department, one of the largest fire departments in the world. Uh, hurricanes, earthquakes, urban threats, oh my, he deals with it all. Dr. Gupta is dual board certified in emergency medicine, as well as pre-hospital medicine, disaster medicine, and if that were not enough, wilderness and tactical medicine. And we are gonna get into all of that and more this hour. As usual, I'm Dr. Shauna Pandya, World Extreme Medicine podcast faculty host, as well as honorary fellow. Dr. Gupta, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm delighted to talk to you. So I think we're going to do a little bit of time travel. We're probably going to start with your role um, with LA County Fire Department and maybe move backwards in time because there's just so much to get into um, from your present day job to where you started with developing education protocols in East Africa and Southeast Asia for low resource settings. So let's get into it. What is your day to day like with LA County Fire? You know, the, the misnomer about LA County fire is the fire and uh, <laughs> aspect. Uh, I like to say like 95% of what we do is actually medical. Now, LA County fire is not just firefighters. So this large part of what we do, we have uh, lifeguards. So we do water medicine, which is actually its own very unique form of first response medicine that uh, I feel is not really dived very deeply into. And I don't want to see those as well. Uh, and then we also do, we have specialized air ops teams as well as search and rescue. Um, my, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, when I was, when I first got, got into tactical medicine and search and rescue medicine, I was in Michigan. And at that time, we were actually a part of the teams. Uh, so I, I was going into the water with, uh, with the teams. I had my dry suit training. Um, if you do tactical medicine, you're going into, uh, you're going into these rooms with the SWAT teams. But out in L.A., we have people who are paid to make this their entire lives. Uh, I'll tell you, I did a confined space training recently, and when I came out, uh, one of our trainers, who's a great guy, he says, you know, Doc, just so you know, uh, if we ever have to do this, you're never going in that hole. And I'm like, that. <laughs> That's exactly the attitude of an extreme medicine doctor is feeling like you're, you've missed out. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like they, they have such a cool job, and I just want to play. Um, but uh, you know, so LA County, a lot of what we do is uh, a plan is uh, almost like an engineering aspect. So you think about the prospects, you make sure you have the train that's needed, and you make sure your people have the train that's needed. And when we find that, I don't want to say we were lacking, but um, you know, humans will always find a way to break things that you didn't think they could. It's one hundred percent accurate. Medicine never ceases to amaze. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just, like you'll be like, I didn't know that could blow up that way. Yeah. Um, 
And when that happens, we have to react on the fly. And if it's a big enough issue, one of the three medical directors, me or two of my partners, uh, will come in and uh, assist on the medical aspect. Uh, and we help develop policy as well and make sure that we have the adequate medical supply. The firefighters here who are career firefighters and not volunteer uh, spend a lot of times dealing with logistics and planning. So they take over the logistical planning aspect and we're really there for the medical uh, medical interventions. That sounds um, fascinating as well as uh, adrenaline raising. Um, so are you able to tell us about the types of disasters that you've dealt with? Because it seems like there's a lot um, things that we might not even imagine or not even consider when we're talking about urban disaster um, medicine. Absolutely. Um, you know, the question always comes, it's kind of like the definition of what's a mass casualty. Right, a mass casualty is when your when your resources outweigh or your victims outweigh how many resources you have. So our disasters vary about where um LA, in LA County actually is getting having a disaster. Uh, for example, is we have Catalina Island, which was recently uh, area of concern in that recent upcoming hurricane. And while we, if if the people in Catalina were on mainland, it wouldn't be a big problem. But in Catalina, we only have a three bed ER. Uh, so that was a potential upcoming disaster that was going to ha happen uh, versus if it's actually in L.A. County itself. And then we have a plethora of resources, um, you know, disaster. So what would be a disaster maybe for a smaller size city is not necessarily a disaster for us. Um, perfect example would be, uh, I don't know if you ever saw this in the news, but we had a uh, warehouse full of hand sanitizer that was flammable go up. Oh no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Um, and that would have been really, really difficult for literally anywhere else, unless it had a fire department our size. Uh, but we had a full battalion's worth of uh, engines, trucks, and apparatus uh, helping hose it down. Uh, I, I'll, a perfect example was uh, one of our smaller fire departments that we tried to uh, we help we help out with a mutual aid agreement. Uh, they, the chief told me he's like, you know, we were we had this fire and we we're having trouble dealing with it, and then we called you guys in, and all of a sudden there was engine trucks everywhere. <laughs> it's like sending out the bat signal, but for fires. So that's that's so funny because as you were talking about the hurricane, I thought these are the things they don't prepare you for in med school, especially not for uh, L.A. County. Uh, but then you talked about the hand sanitizer fire and there's there's no way, no amount of contingency planning that I ever would have um, thought that that's something I need to think about medically. So um, and I'm sure was that something that, you know, you prepared for that there's was precedent for? Oh, no. God, no. Uh, it, it was, uh, I still remember when I got the call, I'm like, what's burning where? And I'm like, how? And they're like, just fire everything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, no, there's absolutely no preparation. Um, so, one, oh. Yeah, no, go for it. Go for it. Uh, I'd say one unique thing that I have found specifically in L.A., is with our manufacturing uh, facilities that we have out here. Occasionally, we have fires of that have these chemicals that go up, and that's really where the hazard of being a firefighter comes into play. So it seems like a normal fire, so you may not have your mask on, but these chemicals are in the air, and uh, after the chemicals rise in the air, people who are exposed tend to have respiratory 
it's not really an infection. It's just a, a component of a respiratory symptoms for a prolonged period afterwards. And that's just a hazard you get from being a metropolitan city like that. Just another day on the job. Wow. So after you come upon what I think in any other context would be a totally unforeseen scenario, do you say, okay, that was new. Um, do you need to debrief, plan for it, make policy around it, or just say, okay, well, we'll deal with it the next time because we dealt with it pretty well? Uh, he, so there's a couple ways we go about it. Number one, uh, we have aggressive peer support. So uh, heaven forbid, we've had a few situations where uh, our people have died um and or the sheriffs have died and it, it you'll find you know this already but first responders are awful about seeking help um we don't we don't force them to go through therapy and talk about it we you know studies have shown that doesn't help and possibly cause more trauma but we do get them in a position where they're allowed to be vulnerable and have discussions so they can they can say hey i need help um, the second thing is we obviously we definitely have a debrief. debrief. Um, even with us training over and over again, every time we do a mass casualty training scenario, we find places that we can improve. Um, if I if I may, t I don't know who's reading this. If they're mass casualty nerds, and if they are, I apologize if you're not, because it's probably the boring part. Um, one thing I have found over and over again watching this mass casualty happen is that and this is my personal belief i have not proven it in theory um but you know when you triage we focus a lot on triage like you have the salt you have the start you have the jump start we focus on are they red yellow or green uh, but for true mass casualty one of the issues i found is that it's the it's not really the triaging the patients that's the problem we may miss it a little bit, but it's not a huge deal. What the problem is the next level up. Uh, when people arrive, who's taking charge? Who's got one role? Do they know what role they have? And how are they going to make that role effective? And we don't spend enough time teaching the captains or the chiefs or above. Um, and so that when we identify that weakness, we specifically started training on that particularly. And there's a lot of confusion. Um, I just want to pull on that thread. Uh, oftentimes when there's mass casualty, you don't know. Sometimes you know the number of victims, sometimes you don't. Uh, sometimes there's a lot of confusion. Um, so, And I've seen that even in simulations, that the first thing that happens along with mass casualty is mass confusion. Um, so how do you discern or how do you dissect that, establishing who's in charge, chain of communication, um, info gathering? We do a couple things. Number one, uh, we have uh, these things called, we have alarms. Uh, so mass casualty, first alarm, second alarm, third alarm. And it's literally just a bracket. Like guess how many patients there are, activate this MCI alarm. And that takes out a lot of thinking from the actual firefighters themselves. If you want, I can pull up the alarm scheme. Uh, but basically it gives you a ready-made package. So if you, have, if you have five to 10 patients, here's your package. 10 to 20, here's your package over 20, you're getting all this. Um, and then the second thing is we have specific roles assigned from when you arrive. So uh, I've, can I give you an example really quick? For sure. Uh, so uh, we, every single response we ever have is gonna have a trucker engine, which is gonna come with uh, engineer who drives it. We basically just consider an EMT. So you, you have two EMTs and a captain. And then you're going to get two paramedics and you're going to get that on every single response that has a paramedic response in LA County. 
So the way we do that is first and captain is the initial instant commander. They know that's their role. The two paramedics are instantly assigned to communications and the EMTs are all assigned instantly to start triaging patients. And then when the next captain comes in, they immediately take over the triage situation. So every role, like we, we have a plan for when you come in, what's the first captain going to do? What's the second captain going to do? What's the third captain going to do? And what's the paramedics going to do? And so it sounds like everyone is, you know, well-trained and, hey, this needs to happen. This is the chain of command. So it sounds like um, based on the amount of incidents you have to deal with in L.A. County that you have this down to a fine art. Yeah. And we, we, we have that way because, uh, unfortunately, uh, we recognized in multiple recent incidents that we needed to. So is that a recent development then that um, this chain of and how long has that been in place? They had a variation of it um, that had been done in uh, the earlier 2000s, uh, but we just looked at it and revised it and improved it because uh, we're constantly improving, and that was done last year. So I want to back up to um, this hand sanitizer warehouse fire because, again, this is not a phrase I would ever thought I would have said during this podcast, but also I've learned to keep an open mind. Um, so as the medical director or, or as one of the medical directors, um, it must be thinking, you know, keeping your head on a swivel, looking in all directions, looking at your team, seeing how they're doing, looking if they're exposed to toxic exposures, looking out for casualties. Can you take us through that mindset and what's going through your head? So luckily for us, uh, we, are, we have it mostly already set on autopilot. So what we do is, uh, so we have EMS trained captains that respond to every single major fire and they are trained to set up a rehab tent. So we follow NFPA guidelines in terms of how long you're supposed to wear a breathing apparatus. So you were supposed to wear, we wear it for one tank. Once your tank is done, you have to go to rehab. Um, in rehab, we have, a, we have specific rules that our captains follow upon setting every single rehab station. And that is, it has to be uh, upwind, so you're not gonna get the smoke of whatever it is. You have to get your vitals checked in before you go in. You're gonna get your vitals when you check when you go out. It's gotta be away from the media so that you're actually truly allowed to relax. And we have to have uh, ultralight rehydrating supplies. We let that just auto go. Um, if we if we thought if we went into what people were exposed to every single time, we'd be doing a lot of background research. Uh, really what we do is once the fire is over, if they have uh, symptoms, then we send them to the occupational health specialist to look at them. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And that's basically separation of church and state. We try not to be the doctors of our own people, which is markedly different from the French. <laughs> that's so that's really interesting. And so um, aside from separating um, your your role from occupational health before that, though, um, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about how hard it is to seek help um, from a mental health perspective within um, pre-hospital care, within medicine. Um, is there kind of this unspoken rule that, you know, what the rules are or what the rules are, you know, your vitals are below this cutoff, you know, you're off, you're taken out of the scene, you're taken out of action, um, or do, you know, is there that kind of uh, machismo where, um, you know, the, the first responder will say, hey, I'm fine, it's, you know, I'd like to get back out there, um, or is that kind of a struggle? Uh, it's a struggle. Uh, they always want to get back out there. They feel a 
uh, and we noticed this a lot during COVID, even if they could barely walk a block, there was this huge inner moral fight battle uh, about wanting to get back out there and feeling like they were letting their fellow first responders down by not being in that fight. Um, and so we actually specifically, the, the, the rehab could typically be done by anyone, but we specifically have it by a captain rank so that they can be ordered to sit down. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's so, um, that's, it, it's incredibly important to um, let, I guess, anyone medical or pre-hospital know that it's okay to not be okay. And it's it's quite relatable, I think. In medicine, um, I think COVID was the first time that many physicians realized that it's not okay if I go to work sick because I'm going to make others sick. But um, I think you know this and I know this in residency and in training out in practice. If Unless you were actively, you know, hemorrhaging, you would probably show up at work. And even in that case, you'd probably try to walk it off or something. I mean, that's just been the culture of medicine. So, you know, this it's really important to have that discussion about putting in fail safes and having the captain say, sorry, you're out. Can I tell you my favorite story of all time? Yes, uh, please. Of all time, but it's one of my favorite stories of like a doc doing this. Like, so we have a, well, I'm going to say her name. I don't really care. So we had a good Dr. Swarwolf, uh, Kristen Swarwolf. She's a beast. She's about like four feet tall though. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and she, well, I still remember she was, uh, she was like nine months pregnant. Like I, she's a tiny person. She can barely reach her hands across her thing. And I see her, uh, and she has this really bad angioedema patient. And, uh, and so like tongue swollen, airway might get obstructed. It could go real bad. And it's just me and her working that night. And I walk by and I see her intubating. And I'm like, you know, you could have, you could have called me to innovate this patient. She's like, I'm not gonna call you to innovate my patient. <laughs> she nailed it, by the way. She got it. Yeah. She's a, she's a, she's amazing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's that it's that culture where they're like, I'm not gonna call you for help. Uh, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And to your point, you know, I've heard about neurosurgeon, uh, female neurosurgeons operating while they're pregnant and in labor, finishing the operation, and then saying, okay, <laughs> no. so. Yeah, I think I think the takeaway here is it's okay to ask for help. Um, I want to keep going back in time. So what led you to this position? What part of LA County, one of the biggest urban areas in the world, there's a lot that happens in terms of earthquakes, uh, natural disasters, uh, gun violence, I don't need to tell you, you live this on a day to day basis. Um, so what part of LA County called to you because you were in Flint, Michigan before this, um, if I understand? Uh, serendipity. <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. Have you, ever, have you ever read the book, The Alchemist? Yes, um, I read it for the first time a few months ago. I, I like in that it, it kind of had a weird way of kind of saying like, you know, think like there's something telling you to go someplace. I don't really believe in fate, but I'll say a bunch of really weird coincidences led me to LA County. Um, so I was, a uh, I was working as an ER doc in Flint and I still remember one day I was just like, I need to go and I need to do international medicine and I need to do it now or I'm not going to do it. Um, and my, the, the chair, uh, Dr. Yagi, who is still a mentor and a, a dear friend of mine, uh, he says, you know, well, just go. If you got to go, go now. Uh, and so I and I remember I so I sold everything I owned. I had to tell everyone I wasn't suicidal. Uh, <laughs> and I, I turned I bought a van and turned it into a tiny home, uh, which 
uh, I might have been suicidal because I nearly killed myself multiple times while building that thing. Uh, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I was going to do MSF, uh, but I looked at myself and I'm like, you know, teaching is what I love. I love teaching and system design. And I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. So I go do my international medicine thing and I come back and I had been working for University of Michigan before. Uh, and so I was a clinical professor and but University of Michigan has a very specific timeline that you can get your job back. And that timeline was not up for me yet. So I was in that window where I what I couldn't get my job back just yet. And so I'm wait, I'm working in this tiny ER, uh, waiting to get my job back. Uh, and I'm working next to one of my old residents and she turns around and she's like, huh, there's a opening in LA for an EMS fellow. And when I had done my two years of international work, uh, I kept getting dragged into these EMS projects because I had just wrote an EMT on my CV. Uh, and uh, if anyone knows, like being an EMT doesn't really teach you how to fix an EMS system. So I kept getting dragged in to fix these EMS systems. And I'm, I felt like, man, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So this right when I didn't have a job, well, I didn't have I had a good job. I was working as a mercenary for hire, but I didn't have my professorship. Uh, and right when I was thinking about doing this EMS fellowship, I got like this opening to do an EMS fellowship right where my parents are. Uh, so I'm like, fine, I'll go back. And so I go back in and I do the fellowship. Uh, and then I'm right after the fellowship finishes and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life again. Uh, COVID happens. And so I can't go anywhere. And then LA County Fire realized it needed all the pre-hospital specialists that were available because we were in charge of the COVID response for LA County. Uh, and so they snagged me and my three friends up, or two friends, two friends up. Uh, and so all three of us joined LA County Fire. And then uh, I just stayed. Wow, that is a wild ride. So um, if I have the timeline correct there, you were working in Flint, level one trauma center. You felt, you know, you realized that, hey, it's now or never. You went to, this is when you went to East Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, came back, did the EMS fellowship, and then bam, suddenly you're in LA County seeing uh, ethanol hand sanitizer warehouse fires. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Um, that's incredible. And so um, you'd been in practice for about four years um, before all of this happened. Um, is that correct? Yeah. How hard was it to go back into fellowship? Um, you know, you hear stories of this all the time. The longer you're out, the harder it is to go back. You get that sense of freedom of schedule. You're getting a physician salary and then bam, you're giving it all up to go back into fellowship. Was that a hard transition for you? Oh, absolutely. And it was funny. It wasn't even the money. The money, like I had plenty of money, uh, you know, not having kids and not being married. I like, there's nothing for me to spend my money on. I, I, I like camping, so I don't spend money on things anyway. Um, and so, uh, it wasn't the money. The money wasn't a problem. It was the time. I'm so, I was so used to being able to do whatever I want, whenever I wanted. And all of a sudden I was like, I was working like a resident again. And I forgot how much that's. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's uh, it's when you I don't know what your experience was going from residency to um, attending physician, but for that first year or two afterwards, you're so unused to not working 80 to 100 hours a week, 
it's someone needs to actually sit down with you and say, listen, you don't have to do this. And uh, myself and my colleagues had this moment where we sat down and said, oh, you know, it's actually normal to work less than that. Um, what, did you have that moment uh, coming out of training? No, uh, but mostly because I was super scared the entire time. <laughs> uh, no, I don't even remember the moment I realized. I think it was like my by my as my second or third year. Then all of a sudden, that I realized, oh, I have free time. <laughs> what is this? What is this new sense of freedom that I have? Yeah, my first year, I think I was just like silently screaming in my head. I'm like, what's happening? That's right. It's, you know, realizing you're looking around for someone to make decisions and then realizing it's you. That's, uh, that's yeah. abject terror. And, you know, part of it was working. I went from like residency to working in Flynn. I still remember my first shift. Um, I'm sitting down. I'm a brand new attending. All of a sudden I hear like there's 20 level one traumas coming in at the same time. And I was like, what's happening? You know? Oh my gosh. And how did you deal with that situation? Uh, well, uh, you know, thankfully or unthankfully, most of them were dead. Um, so what we, so we had a trauma bay with four beds. Um, me and another attending were on, so that was two beds. Then we grabbed the behavioral attendings. We had three attendings and then we grabbed the pediatric attendings. We had four attendings with one attending on each of the beds. Um, and then, uh, there were so many patients that the, speaking of disasters, uh, there's so many patients, the EMS didn't really, they were just grabbing and going. They are throwing as many as they could in the back of the ambulances and they were going. Uh, and so when they got to us, they'd literally put it on the bed. Uh, we would check for pulses, drop double needles, see if there was a, any any sign of resuscitation on ultrasound. And if that was a cardiac standstill, we put them in another cot, had them wheeled out and we got another body and we just repeated that. So continuing this, uh, this, uh backward time travel. Um, let's shift to East Africa. So was this your first international deployment or did Southeast Asia come first? Uh, my first international work was actually in Guatemala. Okay. Um, but I only was doing, so I had a good friend of mine. He used to, uh, I don't even know if this counts, but we, we used to spend, he used to spend like two weeks to a month out in Guatemala working at an orphanage clinic. And then we would grab our bags and we literally just had vitamins and antibiotics and we would find a village and spread the word that we were coming to that village. And then we would treat like at least a hundred people an hour each, uh, just come. Wow. Check. And what was the most common, um, chief complaint or present presentation that you would see? Uh, someone lying about having a fever so they get Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> And, that's, uh, you know, that's exactly it. It's really sad that sometimes, you know, it's just resources, you know, they in impoverished settings, people want resources. Well, we had a lot of a uh, lot of kids that had uh, worms. Uh, so we gave a right. lot of like me Bendazol. Right. And had you did you plan for that? Did you uh, pack that in your kit or was it realizing oh, we need to acquire that? Uh, a lot. We know we we knew going into it that there was going to be a lot of malnutrition and there was going to be a lot of worms. Um, mm -hmm. So those were actually the main things that we had packed with us. Uh, and those were the main things that we tended to distribute. The other ones, uh, so there's an orphanage that has a little pharmacy. So we would have uh, your typical antibiotics uh, and then we, we would use them as well. And how long were you in Guatemala for? Off and on for a couple months. 
And what were your biggest takeaways from that? Was it, was it what you expected? Was it sort of, were there days when it was like, oh, this is, you know, this is not what I expected. I'm going back to Flint or, you know, I just want to move and spend the rest of my life here. What, where, where did, where did you land? You know, it's interesting you asked that because I, I don't think I truly thought about it until just now. Um, so that was my, I was a resident. I was my second year and that was my first taste of international medicine. And I still remember this case. Uh, it's not hit, but I didn't get paid for it. Uh, I still remember this case. Uh, we're in the middle of some village where they gave us these noodles, which I'm still not sure if I should be eating, uh, but I did. And this uh, guy comes in for back pain because he dropped something on his back and you can feel the step off. Like this might be the first spinal step off I've ever, ever felt. So this guy clearly had a spinal fracture that's probably going to paralyze him. And all I could do was write on a note card, uh, go to the main city to get go, go see a neurosurgeon. And then you hand him the card and you hope he manages to pull it off. Great. Uh, and it's sort of doing what you can, but feeling helpless as well. Because yeah. you know what to do if this were Flint or if this were LA. And there was, a, there was another one that was really poignant to me. I still remember it was, um, there was a girl on catatonic schizophrenia. Uh, so it was weird. They would, they, she would eat, but she wouldn't move, but she had that rigidity you typically see. Um, and I would like, same thing. You're just like, you just really, if you can get her to the main city, she needs psych meds. And, and how far away were you from the main city at that point? Oh, hours, uh, hours yeah. by motorized vehicle. Um, and we, we had to get a, we had a, we had to take a boat down the river and that ride had taken a couple of days. Oh, no. So I don't know how long it would take them to get to the main city. And what was the what was the road infrastructure like? Was it something that, you know, would be a bumpy, harrowing ride? Would it be days? Would it be, um, you know, was there a relative, at least the infrastructure to support a journey to the city? You know, I had a hike in. Um, so I don't know. Do you know how it is when you go to like a developing country? Like they take those trucks and cars places that I wouldn't think they could. Uh, so uh, I don't think you could get there by a motorized vehicle, uh, but I've been wrong before. Wow. And how did you even think to, to present or to come to this place? Was it something that previously your uh, residents from your program had gone to or was it? Yeah. So there was some, some heritage here. So once you finished that medical um, uh, deployment, you know, what, what were your thoughts? Were you sort of, you know, was this like, I have to do more or, you know, I need to come prepared with this, this and this next time. Where did you um, land after that? Uh, you know, there's always a feel to do more. I feel like, uh, you know, there's always worked. I, you know, the one thing I've come to at this point in life is there's always more work to get done. Uh, and we're not going to help everyone, but I felt like we could definitely make a change. You know, the one thing that frustrated me, the one thing that frustrated me when I was out there was we were a bandage. Like we go out there, we give these uh, antiparasitics and multivitamins, and we didn't leave a system behind that could self-sustain itself. If we, and I, I remember talking, now I, you know it's so funny. I haven't thought about this in years, um, but I remember sitting around a table and being like, if we could just train a local individual to get like give multivitamins, and when they see X signs to give the parasites, we could make this a largely self-sustainable program. 
Um, right. And you, you're kind of reading my mind here because I, you know, you touched on one of the biggest challenges in um, international medicine is, you know, capacity building, you know, what happens when you're gone and helping the community stand on its own feet. Um, so, you know, kudos to you for, for touching on that. And it sounds like you've touched on that throughout your international career with educational um, protocols and um, teaching uh, in Guatemala and East Africa and beyond. So tell me about that. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's when, when I started developing the teaching, uh, so I'll get into, let me back up really quick. Uh, one thing I found coming back was that it's, it's interesting when you don't have that many medicines and you don't have that many interventions you can do medicine becomes pretty simple um it i mean it's not super simple but i'm not thinking about ruling out acs or a stroke when i don't have a cat scan or any way to treat it you like it is what it is actually my uh my grandfather died of a stroke uh nobody knew when he when he had it but it, we were like in rural india so you just kind of let it happen um so you know, it's easier to train someone when they don't need to have the level of knowledge that you'd expect from uh, even a PA or NP. Um, and because we don't need as much, we're able to train them to do a lot of things that uh, the community needs. So when I was in uh, Uganda, there's a group out there called GAC. And what they're doing is they're turning the nurses into the uh, nurse practitioner role of uh, Guatemala, not Guatemala, sorry, Uganda. Uh, but their nurses don't actually, their nurses don't actually have that much training. Uh, so the, the hospital we were at had one doctor on at any given time and they had nurses on, but the nurses did your typical work that the LVN would do, you know, uh, to make sure the patient is clean, make sure they get their medicines uh, and make sure to check the input and output but they weren't putting IVs in, they're not really doing uh, fluids, and they're not really, uh, they're not, they don't have a high degree of ability to assess the patient. So what GAC does is it had a two year long curriculum designed. Um, and after the two years, they were able to do basic evaluations for the patient. So um, they could do ultrasound. And most of the time it was like either malaria or typhoid or some sort of cough. Uh, we didn't have, we had an EKG machine, uh, but it ran out of EKG tape. So you couldn't really use it. Uh, I could use it because I had a little monitor, but we couldn't teach anyone to use it. So you didn't really need to worry about that that much. Um, so that was one way we helped it there. And then when I was in Bhutan, um, there was ortho, there was these special types of, or, their orthopedics were these ortho techs and all they were trained to do was to reduce fractures and cast them. Uh, and it was a, it was, it's a kind of unique kind of tech position, but that was one of the main things you need in Bhutan is just fix the fracture uh, and splint it in place. So they had these like cool, unique roles that serve the population. And so this kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier with, you know, being thrown into uh, EMS fellowship, understanding the EMS system before you can actually bring improvements to it. Um, and so with the um, GEC project with the nurse um, uh, nursing uh, scope of practice, was there any uh, 
infrastructure or bureaucracy to either work with or fight against? Was it was it by virtue of where you were that the nurses um, were practicing as LPNs? Uh, was that kind of the training that was specific to that region? Um, or was it simply that they just needed, you know, it was within their scope of practice, but they just needed to be trained up? Um, so I don't believe it was in their scope of practice, but it was envisioned by the GEC founders as a way to make a sustainable medical system in Uganda, which does not have a very sustainable medical system at baseline. And how did you, like, was there anything to codify to, to help, you know, spread that, that increase in scope? Was there anything to uh, fight or enact policy-wise? Oh, coming, coming into uh, any foreign country, you need to, uh, I mean, this is a general international medicine rule, right? It's uh, you, you can't come in like a savior. Uh, you need to come into the country, find out what they need, see if they're willing to work with you and develop a program together uh, rather than telling them what they need. Um, not only is it, I don't know what the correct term is, if you, I don't know if you got one in your brain, but uh, we should not be telling people what they need, but we also need to be working with them rather than coming in rather high-handedly. So there was a number of discussions. I don't know if it was actually protocolized anywhere. No one, I'll be honest with you, I didn't look into that, but it was an agreement that had been done with the country, and then they had uh, two main sites that they had this program initiated, and those were the two major metropolitan centers. Yeah, and that's that's exactly it. And I think as we as we try to become um, more supportive and capacity building based in international medicine, um, that seems to be a philosophy that we're working that they you know any international healthcare practi practitioner is working towards. So it's been a while since you've been um, in the international sphere. Um, do you have plans to go back? I would love to. You know. The, the thing about pre-hospital medicine, at least in the United States, although I feel like United States is kind of like a canary in the birdcage, like if the United States is having a problem, then probably the rest of the world is, is that we don't really know what works, what doesn't, and we have so many issues that there's still so much work to get done here. I'd say like my, I actually had to set work boundaries. Uh, I, if if I could, I would work. I, all right, let me back this up. Uh, when I saw certain, I see certain problems with the system. I'm like, this, this could be causing people to die, and probably is causing people to die. And I started working 16 hour days, and then part of me was like, you know what? They were dying before. They're gonna die after. You're not gonna get this finished in one day. You got to slow it down. So now uh, I'm still working on my efficiency, but I set solid work boundaries. Um, but I feel like my work here can help my work outside of here and internationally. I do still work with international medicine groups, uh, and I still am continual communication with Bhutan, uh, just in case there's any needs that they particularly do, because I had a special love for that program, maybe because they love India so much. Uh, but uh, and I do help them out from time to time with projects, and I work with the international section for both ASEP as well as NAMSP, which are our emergency medicine and EMS physician groups. Um, but I don't. I would love to go international. Uh, how am I going to find the time? Is the question. And I think this is a good last topic to touch on. Um, is you know how do you 
decide, first of all, recognize that, hey, 16 hour days aren't sustainable. Um, and it's kind of this, it, it's this funny realization of being an emergency physician that, you know, in, in Canada, full time equivalents are 12 shifts a month. But then that means that emergency doctors are filling up their time with teaching, with projects, with research, with protocols. Um, so how do you fight that urge to go 24 um, seven? How did you first of all, recognize it? And then how did you, what was that action that you took to set those boundaries? Uh, I wish I could tell you that I recognized it uh, before it caused me harm. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I was, um, as a more personal story, but I, I'm totally cool sharing it. It's fine. Um, so I was driving to work one day and then all of a sudden I started like crying and I had no fucking clue what was happening. Uh, it's actually kind of terrifying because I wasn't sad. Uh, and then I'm like, what is happening? And that's kind of when I realized I'd had a med- – and at, at this point, I've been working 16 I – was, I was doing full-time as an ER doc, and then I was doing COVID stuff. Uh, and then I'd sleep, and I just repeated. And I didn't really recognize what was happening until I went to go to check – I was like, I got to talk to a therapist or something. And that's kind of when I backed up. I'm like, oh, I did this to myself. Um, it's so easy to get caught in that work cycle. Uh, especially when you feel like there's a need and there's always a need everywhere um, that uh, I kind of broke myself. Uh, and I think uh, probably a lot of people probably have, uh, but that's how I found out. And I think it's, well, thank you, first of all, for sharing that because it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it's hard to recognize until something dramatic or catastrophic happens. And especially during COVID, you know, there's so many of us who said, okay, like, look, if not me, then who's going to help all of these patients, but there's always going to be patients. And one thing that we try to emphasize in emergency medicine and the extreme medicine community is that, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And starting to share stories of yeah, you know what, working myself 24-7 to the bone, taking on everyone's problems and everyone's projects isn't helpful because that's not sustainable. So, you know, thanks for adding your voice to this this growing realization that, you know what, we got to take care of ourselves. Um, you know, we have covered a lot here today. We went in directions I um, didn't think we would go in, um, but I'm delighted. You know, we've been from Bhutan to Guatemala to Uganda to um, the hand sanitizer warehouse fires of Los Angeles, LA County. Uh, Dr. Panit Gupta, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope we get to talk to you again. I will drop links to your LinkedIn as well as your Twitter or X uh, for those who are interested and hope to talk to you again in the future. Any parting thoughts before we close? No. uh, You know, I think the only thing I think about when I think about working in, I guess you had to call extreme uh, environments is, uh, you know, you're never going to be prepared for everything. but the one thing I've learned is always make sure you check what medicines you have in the closet before it, before you have to figure out the last possible moment. Brilliant parting thoughts. Dr. Panit Gupta, thank you for your time. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical, and performance medicine. Thanks again.